The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Trent and in this episode, Robin and I chat about The Godmother by Hannah Lorcare. Mina interviews our content management librarian, Gareth, about the new library website. Emma reviews The Mother Fault by Kate Mildenhall and I review The Sad Man by Neil Gaiman. We also have a chat with Lauren B about new and emerging authors and Lyndon updates us on programs coming up in the library. Hope you enjoy. Today we're going to talk about The Godmother by Hanilor Carre. It was published by Black Ink Books in 2019, originally published in French back in 2017, and it was a bestseller under the French name of La Daronne, and it's been translated by Stephanie Smee. It was the winner of the European Crime Fiction Prize and the Grand Prix de Literature Policière. Oh, wow. This novel that I have, I could say all those awards. That's amazing. So do you want to start us off with a bit of a summary? I guess it's basically a story about a first-generation um, French woman um, born to migrants, one from – her father was from French Tunisia and her mother was a Viennese Jewish lady who escaped World War II, actually, now that I'm thinking of it. It reminded me a little bit of Matilda, whether the parents ah, were towards, okay. towards patients very neglectful, very much concerned with their own well-being and their own sort of status. A little bit more sinister than that story, perhaps, because that was for kids and this one's for adults, who then goes on to grow up to become a interpreter, having learnt a substantial amount of Arabic to the point where the courts hire her as an interpreter of various court cases as well as communications between, between criminals or would-be suspects. And eventually comes across a certain piece of information that leads her to sell her own illegitimate substances mm. and make a lot of money in the process. Yeah, that's when she becomes the godmother of the title. Yes. Yeah. And she's quite an interesting character. She's not your typical heroine. Patience Portifer is her name. She's mm-hmm. when we meet her, she's fifty-three years old. She's hardworking. Well educated, like you say, she's got a doctorate in Arabic. I think she's very striking to look at. She's got this long grey hair, very piercing blue eyes. She's always very well groomed, so she's very striking. But she's very ordinary in in many other ways, and we can relate to her and feel for her circumstances that she's in. I guess it's just about trying to survive day to day and and what we can do. I guess that put Patience's decision to work in the courts, not only to support her family, her children, but then also her mother in the aged care facility, which 
apparently cost something like 6,500 euros Mm. a month. It's really expensive. She was working as much as she could, but yet she still got these huge payments that she has to make every month. Her life was kind of in two halves, kind of, to me. She she grew up um, with her parents on this estate in Paris, but it was sort of a bit of an enclave for criminals and and people that were sort of dealing in... um, all kinds of dodgy things. But her family got rich. They lived pretty plainly, but they they got rich and they took expensive holidays to places like Switzerland and Italy and, you know, spent money like millionaires. I think that was explained that uh, in order to evade the um, tax authorities, they would not spend anything at home so that they couldn't show their wealth while living, but then would spend lavishly while overseas because it wasn't something that could be traced, which then sort of um, accentuates the, the criminal activity, I think, of her father. Patience often refers to herself as the little fireworks collector. And there was... Oh, what a wonderful, yes, recollection. I love that. Yeah, there was a lovely bit in the book where she explained that. And it was on one of the times when she was on holidays with her parents in Switzerland and Patience had her photo taken next to Audrey Hepburn at the Belvedere Hotel. And there was fireworks going off in the background and Audrey asked Patience what she wanted to be when she grows up. And Patience said, a fireworks collector. And Audrey said, well, that's very interesting. I've never come across one of those before. And she says, in my mind, I'm going to travel the world and see them all and that's how I'm going to collect them. So Audrey was really impressed with that and she ordered a photo to be taken of them and she gave a copy to Patience. Now, Patience later lost her copy of the photo, but she did end up buying it back uh, when she saw it in an auction catalogue. So she she spent a lot of money actually trying to buy it back. But that photo sort of represented um, the promise of her earlier life, that life that she was in with her parents when they were going on all these lavish holidays. It's kind of a reference to her um, younger self and you know, the promise yes. of her earlier life. Trying to relive. And I think she mentions a bit later on about what she wants to do with her life um, as she starts getting to retirement and hoping to make enough money to live an endless summer, she she calls mm, it, mm. where she could travel the whole world going from one set of fireworks to the next. Yeah. And finally finishing up in Miami or or another part of the world. Oh, I think it was Manila. Manila, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I've got a, I think I'd want to go there just to see the fireworks. Yeah, she makes it sound <laughs> really good. But it's sort of it's sort of tinged with a bit of sadness as well because yeah, you get the feeling that her not, her life didn't turn out quite like she wanted it to or quite like she imagined it was going to back when she was a little girl. Well, she actually mentions, I think it was just soon after her her husband's death, very early on in the book, this is page 17, where she's mentioning the moment when her husband, who she has the children with, has an uh, aneurysm, mm. just dies when they're having some food. And then she mentions how she sort of went through this process. She sort of felt just, just completely overcome by grief that she couldn't even express it properly. And then she wrote that she, get to the, she got to her apartment where she lived and then the line here says, then I got down to work. Ah, yes, work. Before written out, being written out of the happily ever after script by some malevolent entity, I had no idea what it involved. Mm. Yeah, she was really thrown for a six because not only had her father died young, but then she married 
her husband and he also died very suddenly, leaving her as a widow with two young children. She got thrown out of their house, had to kind of sell their furniture and stuff and life really went downhill for her. In fact, there was one bit in the book that I read about when she was talking about that time. Naturally, it wasn't long before I came crashing down. I already had a tendency to talk to myself and eat flowers, but one afternoon I walked out of the Celine boutique on Rue Francois Premier as if in a trance, dressed head to toe in new clothes and muttering to nobody in particular, goodbye, I'll pay later. When two poor security dudes all in black with earpieces accosted me before I reached the door, I lashed out and bit them, drawing blood. I was taken straight to the madhouse. Yeah, but that she's, I guess, the difference here, which is probably possibly what happens, I guess, with subsequent generations, is the diet to do a bit better. Mm. And that she wanted to give her children something a lot more than she had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's part of the reasons why she entered into this life of crime, despite the fact that, you know, I think the first, very first line in the book was, my parents were crooks. So she did have that in her background and it's maybe not surprising that she ended up turning to a, you know, life of crime. But she wasn't greedy in the no, end. I wouldn't say that she was greedy at all. Yeah. In the end, she just sort of ended up doing what she needed to do, pay for her mother's care and to look after her children. Mm-hmm. So she left the rest behind. She just wanted to be be comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, this touches on something that I noticed um, throughout the entire novel is sort of the themes of immigration and sort of racial assimilation for, for migrants when they move to certain places. And something that I really was not aware of considering my understanding of French history, that they were quite progressive through their time. This um, paints the French establishment or French authorities as quite xenophobic and at times quite racist. Patience herself is a first generation, so she's sort of accepted, um, but not entirely given her job, where there's even a moment she's mentioning how she's not or she's not on the books for her job. Mm. So she's paid all right, but they don't really recognise her existence. At uh, one point where there's a judge sort of blasting an immigrant about not having papers and not existing and all these things, she stands up and says, Your Honour, I too am working without any documentation and for the Department of Justice, no less. So since I don't exist, see how you manage without me and walks out with just mm. walks out of the courtroom and leaving it at that. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a watershed moment for her. She kind of realises the irony of it in that um, the way these people are being treated is kind of the way that she's being treated as well. Even when she was working as the interpreter for the um, recordings, she would often put remarks of not relevant to investigation. Mm. And no one ever questioned her because of the reliability that she sort of garnered by that point, that everyone trusted her quite well. Yeah, absolutely. She'd um, created herself a very good reputation. She had worked very hard, but she was definitely trusted by the police with all of the information that, um, you know, she was translating. And that eventually helped her when she decided to get in, get in on the act herself. She did very well, I think, in that role. <laughs> yeah. She sort of, uh, her persona changed when she became the godmother. You know, like we were saying before, from being this very colourful, hopeful child, she'd become this kind of drab, dreary sort of person that was really dragged down by um, 
all of the work that she was doing in the courts and um, with the drug squad, you know, it was all fairly kind of seedy and she was a bit depressed by a lot of it. Um, but once she became the godmother, her persona changed and she perhaps became a little bit more like the woman she was meant to be or that she hoped she would be. She had a bit more control, you know, her attitude. She was begging if she wanted to have a bit of a story, some some major twist in her life that was worthy of a of a novel or a movie, which I guess that's what it ended up becoming. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And she was sort of, I like the way she she dealt with a lot of the people because she, she knew them, she knew the guys that, that she was talking to because she'd been listening to their conversations, you know, over many months. So she didn't take any nonsense for them. She was pretty kind of sassy as the godmother. Yes. Yeah, so uh, she, um, like I think she mentions even when she goes to shopping to to create her persona as the godmother, just sort of how much fun she had, and then how she would walk past windows and see her reflection and not quite recognize herself, mm-hmm. which made her happy that she was sort of going to be able to hide um, hide from the authorities that she ultimately worked for. Yeah, and protect herself. yeah, that's right, and that no one would recognize her. And it was funny too that she often would she would be translating her conversations because she would be ringing these people that she was going to do the deals with or whatever and then the taps would come to her as working as a translator so she'd be translating her own conversations sometimes or her part in those conversations i thought it was very interesting how she did empathize a lot with the people that she was obviously monitoring as 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 an interpreter um, and ultimately helps, um, tries to help the sort of how she starts off her, her um, journey down all this mm. um, is because of the relationship she develops with her mum's carer, who ends up being the, the drug dealer who she tries to save, but ends up just scoring all of that, um, all that material. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting because through her her transcripts and her translations. Um, and the phone tapping, she ends up getting to know the people quite well, and she really, she really gets to like them. Particularly this one family, the Abdelaziz. Yeah, um, and she used to listen to because they had different phone lines, didn't they? They had their business line, and they had their sort of private line. And, and I like that she referred to to it the um, the halal the halal line. line. Yeah, <laughs> so she used to listen to both. Um, and I've got a little bit from the book here which talks about that. I liked the Ben Abdelaziz family. They had plenty of get up and go and a healthy love of life, something I myself was utterly lacking at the time due mainly to my mother's hospitalisation. It was a period which I did nothing but cry, sleep and work to pay for her aged care facility. Putting on headphones and listening to them and their stories was one way of getting out of my miserable apartment or the even more miserable officers of the drug squad. I was able to live their life vicariously, and it did me good. I never translated their private calls, always marking them not relevant to current investigation, which didn't stop me following their movements just for the hell of it, as if they were daily updates from a distant branch of my own family. It does touch on is uh, the sense of individual individualism that a lot of uh, migrants might have to experience like while they might be accepted within their own community ultimately there's very little support i think people in this in this um, position in this situation mm. 
which leads them to do these slightly legitimate activities, whether it's the Benabdelaziz family, patients as parents. I guess another thing that I would say is um, what this novel reminded me of, I guess on the surface of it, that Scarface is is very much um, in there considering the subject matter on, on drug dealing. But then also on some level, I think it reminded me of Albert Moo's Outsider, which again is very quirky, probably much more quirky than this novel, but touches on, I think, what happens when you are different in a society um, and how, how you're treated by others mm. when you don't do what's considered normal. So while patience does what is considered normal as, as her job, her personality still comes at odds with other people, so she doesn't really interact with anyone. And then obviously once she becomes the godmother, her quirkiness sort of makes her stand out even more in a sense while also hiding her. That even the um, the Chinese family she lives with actually call her the phantom mm. for the most part of her life. There's a bit right near the end of the book where she has an interaction with Madame Fo and realises that they actually have a lot in common and yeah. they maybe could have even been friends. This is a time when um, Patience was about to to leave, to, to move on, but she kind of realises, oh, yeah, we actually did have a lot in common. We could have helped and supported each other if we'd had the time or you know, been able to connect. One thing that I wanted to touch on, that little story that she tells at the very end. Mm. What did you think about that? There was something very poetic about it, the concept of her sort of recalling a moment with her first husband. Yeah. Yeah, there is a sense of things coming full circle. We don't want to give um, too much away, but... Yeah, it's quite, I found it quite satisfying. She had some contentment in the end and she perhaps got to do some things that she didn't get to do previously. Yeah, I think to, to keep um, our, our listeners in suspense, I think maybe everyone should go and have a mambo one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have to read the book to find out. Overall, it's a really interesting and quirky, entertaining novel. It's not too long to read either. It's yeah, hundred just just under a hundred, uh, just under two hundred pages. Yeah, um, I've, I've got is hundred ninety-seven. Yeah, that's right. So if you're a slow reader like me, it doesn't take too long to read. Um, yeah. And I've heard it described as a delicious slice of French noir, which is probably a good description. I think that's probably right. Probably why it even reminded me a little bit of The Great Gatsby. So there's a lot of comparisons I can draw, and then there's a lot of stuff that it does on its own very well, um, especially considering its contemporization of, of France. Mm. The fact that they're dealing in cannabis, which is still considered um, a narcotic in France, but more and more it's becoming accepted by the world as just something that shouldn't be treated the way it has been for over 100 years, or about 100 years now. Mm. Yeah. Very topical as well. Yeah, very topical. And it sort of doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily glorify her her life of crime, I don't think, because we we see the difficult parts of it as well. And certainly we have that more holistic background of her whole life and what she's dealing with in her life. So we can sort of sympathise and rationalise you know, what's going on with and really support her in what she, support and understand in what she's doing. Yes. Well, I think even the way that um, what really draws away from any glorification of the lifestyle 
is when she's mentioning the the men that she's working with, like Scotch and Lizard and all that, mm. that when she sees them and how they sort of look semi um, trying to be Tony Montana in their own little story, but ultimately she she thought of them as just um, morons, especially considering the way that sometimes they would engage in their in their business activity over their personal lines. There was there was one moment that was that absolutely made me laugh out loud, um, given the um, modern audience that would perhaps be reading this. Yeah, it was in relation to um, the incomprehensibility of God for patients and how she didn't really understand why anyone believed in it. Mm. And then she says at one point, "He could have confided in me a belief that our fate was humans was predetermined by a dish of celestial noodles, and I would have found it less ridiculous." which um, I, I just absolutely lost it laughing because of the Richard Dawkins, which is the concept of the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> and I'm wondering if it was a reference to that. Ah, okay. <laughs> Celestial noodles, flying spaghetti. <laughs> I thought that was very fascinating. I mean, even using the PlayStation to communicate. Yeah, I noticed that as well um, because they knew their phones were being tapped. At one stage when she, Patience was talking to, was it, Kaj's brother-in-law or something. Um, yeah. yeah, they talked through the Xbox uh, as avatars um, in Grand Theft Auto or something, wasn't it? Yeah, Grand Theft Auto Five, which is an online game, and which is a wonder sometimes when they do these things in novels, where it's like giving people ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but very interesting, very interesting um, contemporary concept. Yeah, even mentioning apps like WhatsApp and uh, Wicker and all these other things. There's so many of them. Yeah. So many ways of communicating. I mean, look, there's there's so much in this in this novel. I think it's it's hard to sort of go over everything, but I would highly recommend everyone who is interested in in some of these themes, whether it's immigration or race or um, even feminism on some level as well, considering patients' upbringing and what time. It's, it's a really fascinating novel. Not something that I would normally read, but I, I was still very much enthralled by the novel. Mm, yeah, it's well worth checking out. It's available as a hard copy or an ebook, which is a part of our always available collection. Hi there, my name is Lyndon and I'm in the programs team at the libraries. We've made it to 2021, the libraries are open and from February onwards, our programs will be back in person too. There might be some changes and you'll need to register for most of our programs, but we look forward to doing all sorts of fun things with you all over again. My role is focused a lot on the Libraries After Dark programming, which is such a great project. It's a state-funded initiative that allows our libraries to open longer into the evening until 10pm and provide somewhere safe, free and welcoming for people to gather. I'm really excited to tell you guys that we've got some interesting programs coming up on Thursday nights as part of that, including crafts and bookbinding and gardening and more. Being involved in programs at the library is really rewarding because we get to organise events that really bring people together and let our community explore different arts and ideas in a really hands-on way. Have a look on the What's On page on the library website and get excited to explore. And now, Mina's interview with our content management librarian, Gareth, about the new library website. Hi, Gareth. Thank you for joining us today on The Open Book. Could you tell us a little bit about your role at the library? Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Mina. Uh, my job title is content management librarian. I'm part of the library technical services team, which is actually part of the broader library resources and content team. About my role, um, I really see that I've got three hats that I wear. 
Firstly, I oversee the cataloguing and end processing of library materials such as books, talking books and DVDs. And this process uh, is really about creating the catalogue record so people can find items in our library systems. Um, and it also involves doing covering and putting the appropriate stickers on such as genres and library ownership information. So that's the barcode and so on that you see on books and DVDs. Most of this work is actually outsourced to other companies who do the work on our behalf. So my role is actually developing specifications for them and overseeing the quality control of that process. I do undertake some original cataloguing occasionally, which does require me to keep my skills up through practice and professional development. Um, I work closely with my colleagues in technical services who are involved in serials, which are magazines, acquisitions, interlibrary loans and more. Uh, the second hat is I'm team leader of the virtual library, which is really our digital branch. Uh, the virtual library is comprised of the library web pages on the new council website, the online catalogue, the mobile app, our read and relax blog, and the regular uh, e-newsletter that gets sent, gets sent out. The work's always varied and interesting and includes large projects to implement new systems and also contributing to continuous improvement projects. The third hat, hat is the most varied. It comprises of a range of projects throughout the year, working across all aspects of the library service. And it's, it's really interesting because I get to work on projects with the library's programs teams, the, the events team, our operational staff, library IT, and also the library resources and content team. Um, one of the main things I do there is also extracting data from the library management systems. Um, that's usually to support various projects and initiatives across council. So that's really, uh, yeah, that's my three hats that I wear. Oh, wow, fantastic. That's a very varied role. Um, and within that role, you've had a lot to do with the massive project that was the revamping of the library website and catalogue. As a part of that project, there have been a lot of additions to the website and some things about the catalogue have changed. Can you tell us a bit about some of these changes? Yeah, sure. Um, so this was a uh, quite a large project and it was a significant step in Greater Dandenong's digital transformation. The project actually involved a complete rebuild of the council website and we decided at the same time to do a corresponding redesign of the library catalogue, uh, which some people would formally know was formerly known as the Vault. Um, it's now actually called the Library Catalogue, so we've dropped that branding now. Mm -hmm. um, the new website and the catalogue are actually separate websites. Um, that's common in libraries. Most libraries have a, a council-based website and then their catalogue, which is also another website. We've designed these to work together as seamlessly as possible to pr try and provide the best user experience. We've branded them to look similar, similar colouring, similar fonts and so on. And it's actually mm -hmm. quite a radical change for the catalogue. Um, the other great thing about the um, the new catalogue is actually mobile friendly as well, um, which is oh, a great wonderful. breakthrough. Yeah, 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 that's really good. So if you're looking at it on a phone, it actually works properly now on a phone um, and is responsive to other devices too. Um, the new website and catalogue actually went live recently in mid-November. Um, we're confident that users will soon adapt to this change. As as always, there's always a bit of the change process, yeah, uh, sure. people getting familiar with a new site. Um, and we hope that our third virtual branch is easier to use and, and better connects people with both our physical and our digital resources and also does a better job of engaging people with our great library programs and services. Yeah, fantastic. And what are you most excited about patrons discovering on the library website and catalogue? 
Yeah, well, like I said, Mina, just before, it's it's the mobile responsiveness, which is probably the, the most exciting. Mm. Um, no longer do you have to fit a website onto a tiny phone screen. Oh, um, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, yeah, it actually automatically detects the device that the user's on and, and gives them a really nice user experience. Um, it's really clean, modern look um, across all of the, the sites now. And I'm excited because we've actually, um, because the branding is all looking the same now, it's really a comprehensive and cohesive suite of, of, of sites that we really call our virtual library. Mm. Um, it's the It really ties all the sites together and we're hoping that the navigation between the sites, which is in, inevitable as I alluded to before, with a website and a catalogue being separate sites, we're just trying to, to make that as smooth as possible. Um, I, I think probably the best thing for our users um, will be the improved search capability of the sites and also the discoverability of resources, especially over time as um, search engines like Google actually do index the new website. Mm. Um, I think this is going to be especially useful for people looking for online resources that are now listed all on the on the uh, website. So this is probably one of the most significant changes is that previously all of our online resources were only listed on the, the catalogue or the vault as it was known then. Mm. And being a, a closed system really it's, it wasn't actually a public website so um, the search or sorry the content that was on the catalog was not really visible to search engines like google and it also didn't feature a site search so if you were looking for something specific like one of our great resources like lynda.com or studiosity you actually had to browse for it you couldn't find it in a search so yeah, i think right. yeah yeah so i think the big change now is that um, if people google lynda.com at say dandenong for example they're going to land on the, the digital library page and find that resource a lot quicker. Um, and also, the, yeah. yeah, that's I think that's a good, really good improvement. And also the site search on the actual council website itself um, is really good too. So, and that's only going to get better uh, um, over time as well. Um, so obviously that means that the catalogue has itself has fewer resources on it now and it's actually dedicated more to um, uh, connecting people with uh, placing holds on items through the collections. Um, they can log in and place holds, uh, renew their loans and so on. So really the catalogue uh, is back to its basics, if you like. It's a catalogue yeah. where you search and renew, essentially. Oh, that um, sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Our podcast has a bit of a focus, obviously, on reading. And um, could you tell the listeners how they would go about finding their next read or a specific title on the new website or catalogue? Yeah, sure. Well, look, there's a, there's a couple of ways now. Um, let's talk about finding your next read first. So we've actually got a dedicated page on the catalogue called Find My Next Read. Um, you'll find that link on the front page of the library catalogue. Oh, yeah, the catalogue. Um, that's actually uh, takes you to some content that's been curated by library staff. So actually um, chosen by staff and it's refreshed um, at least monthly. So that's the, probably the first place to go. Um, we also have a great blog called Read and Relax where staff actually put reviews of um, DVDs or books that they've read. Um, anything that's reviewed is actually held by the library service. So and normally those uh well, those blogs will have a link to the to the item. So if you'd like the sound of something that you're reading a review of, you can just click a link and log in with your library card and pin and place a hold on it. Um, you'll find the Read and Relax blog under the Reviews by um, Library Staff page on the website and under Find My Next Read on the catalogue. 
And we've also got a dedicated new titles page on the catalogue. And literally, that is what it says it is. It's a list of new titles that the, the library's actually added to the catalogue in the last month. And that's up, updated usually about oh, usually about the middle of the month. So um, what it does, it's uh, an automated process. It goes back through and actually looks to see what was added to the system. And it puts it into a really nice little book river. So all the latest, yeah, so that's really good. And again, you can just click a link in there and it'll take you straight to the item in the catalogue. You can log in and place a hold. Um, and sort of related to that, we've also introduced what we call book rivers. So if you can picture a sliding list of book covers, um, we've got a number of those on the website and the catalogue now. And these are actually curated lists of titles um, on a specific theme. Um, that theme changes regularly. Like, um, So we recently had the 16 Days of Activism um, uh, mm. at council and we actually populated um, some books on those that sort of topic in that book river and we'll be doing that every month ongoing so and really yeah, tying fantastic. it yeah, yeah and then I mean the good thing about it is we'll tie in closely to to programs and events that are going on at the library and also yeah, things that are happening in a bit of the broader community as well hmm. um, so that's that's about finding um, your next read um, obviously, to find a specific title, that's a little bit more targeted. You actually know what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, it might be a particular book that you've, or a DVD that you've um, either heard of or read a review of or you've seen in the shops. And we've got a number of access points to that as well. And look, the, the catalogue and the mobile app are the best starting points. Um, if you know the title of the book, you can just do a title search and if the library holds a copy, you can place a hold. Um, you can do an author search as well. I guess what's really exciting about um, our catalogue as well, it actually searches all of the libraries in Libraries Victoria. So that's about 23 library services. So it doesn't just search what's held by Greater Dandenong Libraries. It actually is for, um, as I said, 23 libraries across the state. And you can just log in with your card and pen and place a hold and pick it up at Dandenong or Springvale Library. Very easy, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you can also use our mobile app, um, which I will point out is a different site to the mobile version of the catalogue. It's actually a separate app, which you can download from Google or okay. iTunes mm -hmm. or the iStore. Um, one great feature there is to be able to scan the, the barcode. So you just say you were in a bookstore and you like the look of a book and you said, oh, I wonder if the library's got it. You can literally open up your, your library mobile app, scan the barcode and it will do an instantaneous search of our catalogue and let you know if it's held by the library service. And you can oh, just, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's yeah. really great. Yeah. You can just um, place a hold as straight away as well. Just should just mention, I suppose, that each of these methods lets you place holds, as I've said a number of times, and you can choose to receive an SMS, email, or a postal notice if you really want to, to alert you that um, the item's available for collection. Lovely. Thanks, Gareth, and thanks okay. for joining thanks us today on the Open Book. Bye. Bye. Coming up now, we have two book reviews from library staff members Emma and Trent. Hi, my name is Emma and I'm a Community Engagement and Innovation Officer at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm here to review a book called The Motherfold, written by Kate Mildenhall and published in 2020. Victorian author Kate Mildenhall's second novel, The Motherfold, is a brilliant and beautifully written page-turner that tells the story of Mim, a mother of two, and her journey across land and sea in a near-future dystopian Australian setting. 
the government, which have the population microchipped and place those who resist in communal living facilities, would like to keep Mim from finding information about her husband's disappearance from a mine in Indonesia where he was working. Mim decides to take her children and go on the run to find him herself. The journey Mim takes across the country by road and then by sea is challenging, and during this time, Mim reflects on her relationship with her husband, the life they shared, her past, motherhood, and the mother's guilt that often goes along with raising children. The novel has many themes, but the ones that I felt were strongest throughout the book were motherhood, climate change, travel and the freedom to do so, asylum seeking, life in a dystopian society, and government surveillance. You'll like this book if you enjoy the style and stories of Sally Hepworth, J.P. Pomare, Petronella McGovern, Mark Brandy, Margaret Atwood. Overall, The Mother Fault features impressively powerful writing, a brilliant story, and you also can't help but relate to the emotion that Mim feels throughout her journey to find her husband. A highly recommended book by a fantastic Australian author. You can reserve this book for free to read as an ebook, audiobook, or physical copy through the Greater Dandenong Libraries catalogue. Hi there, it's Trent from Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm a library services officer working with children and youth. I'm here to do a review on the Sandman graphic novel series published by Vertigo as collected volumes from 1989 to 1996. It was authored by Neil Gaiman and has various artists as its illustrator. I have very fond memories of this series, with one volume in particular being the source of my love for it. My perception at the time was that comics were something for younger people, but Neil Gaiman introduced me to a world of reading I wasn't aware of, made very much for older teens and adults. After dipping my toe, I jumped in with gusto, not just with The Sandman, but the whole array of wonderful stories with pictures made for adults. These are not comics, but graphic novels, as they are often not comical at all, but quite serious literature. A brief point I will make here is, if you do get interested in these, Mouse by Art Spiegelman illustrates exactly how serious literature this can be. I started this series when I was 17, never having gotten into comics beyond my experiences with Garfield and Archie as a child, and Calvin and Hobbes as I grew up, and various webcomics through the late 90s and early 2000s. The first volume I read of The Sandman was not the first, second, or even the third. I started with the fourth, Season of Mists. Before I give a brief review of this volume, I will begin with an overview of the whole series. As the name implies, the main character is someone or something we should be all too familiar with, the Sandman. Within the story, he is primarily called Dream, but also goes by other names or titles like Morpheus, Oniros, Lord Shaper, or Prince of Stories. He is part of a family called the Endless, entities that have existed since the beginning of the universe and will exist until its end. They are in order of seniority, destiny, death, dream, destruction, desire, despair, and delirium. Delirium was previously known as delight. Each endless is ultimately a personification of something that drives us all in life. And these characters use their fantastical foundations to create some amazing metaphors. For example, destiny is chained to his book and always walking a predetermined path through his realm, controlling the destinies or observing the destinies of others. Death, perhaps one of my favourite characters, or perhaps my favourite, is a highly sympathetic woman who supportively guides the dead to their next life and often helps Dream when he's troubled. Destruction has been absent since humans developed their own weaponry and has not been since by any of the family members since. 
Dream is perpetually enigmatic and a little unstable, understandable given his domain, and while often well-meaning and mindful of his responsibilities, he displays significant imperfection when relating to others and can be insensitive and easily offended. I'll let you discover the other endless for yourself. This series draws heavily from a plethora of mythology, which has interested me since I was very young and what drew me to the series initially. Volume 4 of The Sandman, Seasons of Mists, capitalizes on this and presents a huge variety of pantheons during its narrative. While the beginning of the story is a little out of context, I was immediately drawn to the artwork and the question of who these other characters were before the volume begins its own story. Now, it was very much the question of who other characters were that then led me to read the first three volumes and continue the series as a whole and explore graphic novels entirely. The premise of Seasons of Mists is that Lucifer, a lord of hell, has decided he is tired of the job and wishes to leave to do his own thing. He calls on Dream and charges him with the key to hell and tells him to do with it as he pleases. As a result, some of the souls in hell begin returning to life, causing some measure of chaos on earth. Dream then invites various gods to his realm for them to persuade him as to who should take the key and explain their motives. What ensues is a meeting of the leaders of many pantheons who try and manipulate Dream into giving them the key. Nordic, Japanese, Egyptian and Celtic mythologies are all represented here, including typical demons and angels, and even the concepts of order and chaos are personified. What else happens from this volume is that an entire other series of graphic novels called Lucifer, which is also now a television show, has spawned from just this alone. Now, I could go on at great length about this volume as well as the series, but I will end my review here in the hopes that it is described enough to pique your interest. Hi, my name is Lee, and I'm here with one of our wonderful information librarians, Lauren, who is going to tell us about some new and emerging authors. But before we jump into it, Lauren, I wanted to ask, what got you into focusing on new and emerging authors? Hi, Lee, and thank you. Okay, um, in terms of new and emerging authors, say four or five years ago, we were looking at promoting certain collections in the library out to readers outside the library, our readers that come in. And I sort of was thinking that what about the authors that don't really get a bit of a free run, the ones that are new and wanting to establish themselves in the in the library world? So I started looking into authors that were first time being published first time and wanting to sort of get behind and support some of these authors that that don't already have their name out there and sort of need a bit more support and I started tracking down all the the um, newsletter entries of all the different books that were coming out with from first time authors and I used that to coincide with or set up a display that would coincide with the new and emerging author festival that happens in Melbourne every every June every June so I, I like I like to do a book display and just a poster that advertises all the different authors and then their publications that have come out and and on that too I suppose when I'm talking about um, de- debut novelists it's some of these people have got writing in their in their genes and their history and what they've done they've, they've either been journalists or or they've published a few things here and there in terms of um, newspaper articles or they've 
written something with someone else or short stories or maybe a memoir or something like that. But this is just really a focus on just the debut novelists and what the adult, adult novels. So that's what I wanted to focus on and get that promoted. Oh, I think it's wonderful that you're, you're shining a light on these on these new authors and mm. that's what we're going to do today. So um, we're going to talk about a few different authors. Who did you want to start off with? Okay, well, I'd like to firstly start with Jane Harper. She was one of the first ones back in 2016 with her book, The Dry, and she was she's been she's really got me interested into crime and, and crime had never been a big a big area of mine, a big genre that I'd followed much until until really I started getting into debut novelists. It was a quite a big, big area, quite a big genre actually, uh, the crime area. But anyway, The Dry was her first novel and it won lots of awards. And uh, more recently it's been made into a motion picture starring um, – What's his name? Eric Banner. Eric Banner. Eric yes, Banner, yeah, yeah. Eric Banner, and he's he's the the main character, and and I'm really interested to see how that's portrayed because he was quite an interesting um, uh, detective in the story that that I'd like to see how he's developed because because he he had he was a little bit dysfunctional in a way which a lot of the cops tend to be you know they're trying to work <laughs> out they're trying to discover what's happening behind the crime and, and in their own life they've got things they're trying to work out too so it's it's quite a it, it, yeah it'll be a nice thing to see him being that character I think I think that's quite a nice fit by far by far my best is her third novel in 2018 which was called The Lost Man it was a, a, a bit of a standalone crime crime novel set in outback Queensland and I tell you it just it's a very very rare novel in that I read it twice it's something I don't do but I, I enjoyed it so much um, it, it's just the feeling of of being there of of just really being with the characters too and really mm. just be feeling like you're inside their heads. It was, it was, I just oh, I, I really enjoyed that book so much. And I'm very excited because just this week my hold has become available for her fourth novel, which is The Survivors. So that's set in um, – it's also a standalone mystery set in Tasmania. So I'm looking forward to seeing how, how I get on there when I start reading that one too. Yeah, she's she's converted you to crime completely. Oh. <laughs> you had one more author you wanted to talk about. Who was that? Yeah, this is another book that I really, really enjoyed and it was more like it was also a de- debut novel and it was based on historical fiction this time. Um it it was set in what's called the Dictionary of Lost Words, and it's by Pip Williams. Now, this was released this year, a 2020 novel. It was based on the the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary, and and it was a really really interesting story, in that the young girl, the daughter of the the scholar that was one of the the men's creating the the, the dictionary, and then they mm. they they'd sit every day and add words in that came from all over the world that people and and often often it was um, novelists or poets that that had created the new words to be added, and it was just so interesting. Some of the the words that and and how they were how they were defined and and who they were attributed to and oh it was, it was such an interesting read but but what the the most interesting part about it was that that she she came to discover that a lot of the words that got included tend to have a 
a bit of a male focus. Well, of course, it was men who were adding adding the words, but yeah. but a lot of the the words that described female experiences were not included. So she started creating her own her own dictionary, and and. Yeah, and and well, there's there's a bit more of a story to it than that, but but there's it, it was just so interesting because it was all happening at the time of the suffrage movement over in the UK and and you know the fight for that and how the women wanted their right to vote and and to be heard and and so it was it was just such an interesting story, an interesting and I think really well researched story that that ended up in um in South Australia actually in in the Adelaide area and. And yeah, I think that was just a really, really enjoyable read, and how a, uh, how the fiction of the past can just be developed into such a uh, a wonderful, educating and entertaining story. I was I was really, really impressed with that book too. So that is the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you so much for for joining us, Lauren. I hadn't heard of a couple of those books, so I'm going to have to absolutely uh, join the holds list and check them out. Why not? Why not? There's a lot of good <laughs> stuff out there, especially David Wallace too. For information about any of the books mentioned in the podcast, please go to our Greater Dandenong Libraries website at www.greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries and visit the library catalogue and the Find My Next Read page to access the Bookmatch reading suggestion service. This is Trent, and thanks for listening to the Open Book Podcast. See you all at the library.